She's like, none of it connected in the end. He's like, that's the, the point. point. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to episode of Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. And for this month, we have been talking about the 24-hour movie and... We are concluding our series on the 24-hour movie today. It feels like it's gone by so fast, Thomas. Mm-hmm. It, it weirdly has. Um, so what have we talked about this past month regarding the 24-hour movie? And what is it for people that are just now tuning in <laughs> for this episode? Well, it's it's a little self-explanatory. It is a movie that takes place within 24 hours. It's kind of the parameters we've set for ourselves. So unfortunately... Mm-hmm. We've exiled a few films that that are excellent that are forty eight hour movies. Maybe we'll come back with a uh, maybe we'll come back with an additional segment at some point. But yeah, it's a film that takes place in twenty four hours, and kind of what we've realized this month is that there's really kind of three ways in which this twenty four hour time limit can function. It can be a ticking time clock. It can be mm-hmm. you know something big coming up, or we've only got this amount of time to pull off this heist. Or I have to stop this heist before this happens. Yeah. Shout out Inside Man. Fantastic film uh, <laughs> that we weren't able to discuss this this month. But um, it can also be a use that 24 hours to show you, like we talked about with After Hours, is like this is how crazy things can get in this amount of time. Uh, another film that is technically a 48-hour film that I wanted to bring up this month is Eyes Wide Shut, which is very similar to After Hours, which is just like, how did this night get so crazy? And that's coming to play today, by the way. Ah, <laughs> Eyes okay. Wide Shut, yeah. And um, and then the third one we came up with, which we haven't really discussed this month, but the reason we haven't discussed it this month is that we've gone into it in length in the past, is uh, the Richard Linklater approach. And yeah. obviously Richard Linklater wasn't the first person to do this, uh you know the the french have done it in the past but um it's it's just using that time to make your film feel as realistic as possible to say like hey we're not doing that thing that film normally does where it just cuts to the good parts we're just going to take time as it is not necessarily you know real time although link later has done that before but just be like, you know, we're going to show you all the whole thing. We're going to show you the highs and the lows and, and the, the middles in between that aren't necessarily the most cinematic. Um, yeah. So that's something he does, you know, in his uh, before trilogy. Um, so, yeah, those are those are the three methods that we discussed. Maybe there's others of to how that 24 hours can can function. And and we've seen some films that have kind, kind of been in between, you know, uh, thank God it's Friday is kind of that one crazy night thing, but they've Mm -hmm. also got that kind of ticking time clock of, you know, the dance competitions coming up. Marv has to win it. Uh, Donna summer has to get on stage in time (laughs) for it. The girls need to get in and find a partner in time for it. So while it's not like the focus of the film and it's not, you know, like some of these other movies where it's like, we've got this, this is pressing on us and we have to be done by this time. Uh, it does still kind of have that time constraint on it that that mm-hmm. always has this kind of ticking in the background. Yeah, and so, and something brings these characters together. And this and what's interesting about this, so going with that, like er, something brings those characters together. And when talking today with about Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia, it it's an interesting thing of like they don't fully come together in this movie <laughs> in a way. It's like they're all kind of separate, but it is one one story. And there's yeah. there's some. It's like there are like connections and ways, but like 
Um, they don't fully like, you're not expecting some big, like they all come together. It's like, it's not like the love actually approach. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's like, no. there are connections, but not to the point where like everyone's connected in every yeah, single no, it's, way. It's, it's more like the, this is all happening in the same world yeah. right now, but no, these people exactly. aren't run into each other necessarily. And that's the key with this. It's like it, it, with these type movies, a lot of the times it's characters that are going through like. We talk about one crazy night and after hours how it becomes this like nightmare thing where just everything consistently happens and to Griffin Dunn's character Paul. And with this type of genre, it's usually like everything that could happen or could go wrong goes wrong in this day, is kind of the thing. That's kind of the what always happens. That every obstacle um that these characters have been putting off in some way can usually arise on the stage. Everything kind of just comes to like uh, uh, coordinates together and like lands at the same time so every character's having to deal with some sort of um issue that they've been putting off and i think magnolia i think captures that in a way and we'll we'll mention this too of like i, I don't know if altman's really done a lot of like day in the life type movies but robert altman's come to play with how this movie kind of is structured in a way 100 yeah, percent and because of this big ensemble, and sometimes when I think of 24 hour movies, I do think of kind of like ensemble pieces like Days and Confused. Um, and Magnolia is one that like, I, I, I talked to a friend of mine, they're just like, I forget that movie all takes place in one day because it's such a epic film in terms of uh, length, in terms of the characters. I'm not saying it's, it's epic in scope because it's kind of, um, it's very small. T- it's, it's very it's like, it's all set in the valley. <laughs> it's all set in the valley. It's all very personal things. Um, but I think I read that Anderson, when kind of tackling this movie, wanted to t- turn things that are not epic stories and give them like an epic. Um, I, I think epic operatic canvas. is a word I've heard used often. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, like op- operatic and scale, operatic and in tone. Yeah, it's very much like that's usually. I think Ebert Ebert called it that a lot in some of his kind of few reviews. He did two reviews on it. So yeah. So for those who know what Magnolia is, Magnolia, as we kind of dance around it. Uh, Magnolia is a, I love that Wikipedia calls it a psychological, epic psychological drama. This is one of those movies. I don't know if you can fully pin down exactly what <laughs> it is in terms of like in, in the traditional genre constraints. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a mosaic of all these different characters living in the San Fernando Valley, which is the Valley in Los Angeles, which is where Paul Thomas Anderson is from. And so it's about these kind of, I won't say interconnecting stories, but these kind of characters that can somewhat have connections to one another. There's a lot of coincidence that occurs in the movie of this person's like, maybe they pass the same way or they're in the same, same kind of area of town as we said in the Valley. Um, but has an all-star cast of uh, Tom Cruise and uh, Julianne Moore, John C. Riley, Jason Robarts, Philip Seymour Hoffman, William H. Macy. And it's a film that a lot of people uh, gravitate towards in the Anderson canon. I feel like it's one of those films like you either really love or you don't like at all from like people <laughs> I know. Like there's kind there's, of no there is, mix. There, I feel like there's one specific kind of breaking point where even if you've been like kind yes, of on board yes. with the film, if you're not, you can yeah. hit one part and just you're either in or out. Period. Yeah, and we'll, yeah, and we'll talk about that as we get into. It. But yeah, it's like there's very much like if you're like I say if you're not on I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring this up a lot if you're not on the same wavelength this, as this movie. It's just not going to go well for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's a great, great cast of characters. The kind of uh, acting troupe that Anderson would had created since his first two movies of 
Hard Eight, also known as Sydney and uh, Boogie Nights. Um, a lot of the crew, he uses a lot of the same crew over and over again. Robert Ellswit as the cinematographer. A lot, a lot of the same cast, a lot of the same crew. Um, and it's kind of the, in a way, it's kind of the pinnacle, I think, of the first kind of section of Anderson's career, would you mm-hmm. say? Like, it feels like it's building to this, and then it kind of, like, drops down, and, like, he's reassessing what he wants to do movie-wise. Yeah. I think, with, without skipping too far ahead into our Anderson discussion, I think when you look at the the first couple of films of Anderson's career, there's definitely this this urge to be Robert Altman. Yeah. And I think this is the movie where he was like, okay, I've got whatever. And I mean, you know, you can't pin down Robert Altman to specifically big ensemble films, uh, but that is kind of his legacy, but he made many other types of films, but it does kind of feel like after this, Anderson said, okay, I've made my, my Altman film. Now, now what do I want to (laughs) be? Exactly. And I think that's what kind of occurs. And he, I think it's, I'll talk about this as we get into it. Like he's very young at this point. Um, so yeah, and, and so going into that, what's your history with Magnolia, Thomas? Well, the first memory I have of Magnolia, um, is actually, it, this one was completely off my, like, I, I was familiar with movies at seven when this, when this yeah. came out. Like, I, I remember one of the reviews I was reading compared it to, it was talking about like the best films of the year and they, they compared it to Three Kings, which I specifically remember mm-hmm. Three Kings coming out, um, the same year, 1999. Yeah, it's a big year film. Magnolia was completely off my radar. I don't even know if it played yeah. in Charleston. I don't know what the what the release. Yeah, you're going to go watch Magnolia like seven or eight years old, there, Thomas. Yeah, I mean, I I, I didn't go see Three Kings okay. either, but like I remember seeing Three Kings and and like yeah. Blockbuster afterwards. Yeah, and stuff. yeah. But the first time I'd ever even heard of Magnolia is in the this this is this is even dating myself in the DVD board game Seen It, uh, which <laughs> younger people might not even realize what that is. We used to play a game like you would play Jackbox now on the internet. We used to play games on DVDs. They would sh- they would always show the sorry spoilers frog scene, like yeah. constantly, and that and it would be like you know what color was so and so car and something like that. That was one of the challenges. Yeah. That they would like show a scene from a movie and you'd have to answer some trivia about it. Yeah, and um, I just remember like they showed this scene and there's like frogs and a and an ambulance crash and I was just like, what is this movie? <laughs> So that that was unfortunately spoiled for me by the time I got around to yeah, watching yeah. it. Yeah, um, which was probably college. I, I definitely saw it after Boogie Nights. Yeah, I don't know. I think Boogie Nights may have been the first PTA movie I saw. No, I think I actually saw. I, I saw There Will Be Blood. That might have been the mm-hmm. first movie that I saw because I saw it right after it came out. But yeah, saw Boogie Nights. Absolutely loved it, and then was like, okay, well, I got to see Magnolia now. I, I think I watched this film. By the way, for those that I didn't say this earlier, it's currently streaming on Netflix. Time recording this and available to kind of rent on whatever platforms you watch films on. But it was one I think I watched because the only one I did see in in high school when that came out, and I, I it makes me feel like I might have saw Magnolia at some point in late high school, maybe early college. I just mm-hmm. distinctly remember thinking this feels like a three hour music video. <laughs> because, I don't know why, because it was just it felt. Even though it's not really, if anything, casinos that. Um, in terms of a three hour movie that has just music, basically. Well, and there, there is. We can we can talk about it a little bit later, but there is like constantly music playing in this movie. There, that's the thing. There's con- or, 
or diegetic, but like, yeah. And the score is the score is kind of wild in this movie. John Brand did the score. Um, yeah, that I guess what it is that there's so much score, and with this film, it's like I, I read that that Anderson kind of structured it like the Beatles' "A Day in the Life" song, and so when mm-hmm. when watching it again this time, it's like it definitely feels like a music is very tied to this film but so when i watched it initially it felt like just a long music video where and also just like it just feels like it's like constantly going up mm-hmm. and there's a few kind of dips but it just feels like it's constantly going up it feels like there's like climax upon climax like you there's a lot of points in this film where you could end the movie and you'd have some sort of like st- like not completed story but just because it I think every kind of hour mark, even every half hour mark, there's some sort of big kind of moment for a lot of these characters. And it's kind mm-hmm. of going at the same exact time. And so like the first thing I think of is the, I think the first big, like one at the, at the one hour mark around that time where it's the like camera, like panning to like every character basically in some way. It's like the, the like the, like the, um, the fast pan to, it goes like Julianne Moore and then Tom Cruise and the whoever, and it's just like this mm-hmm. kind of big moment and at first kind of big moment um, that is being connected uh, at the specific period of time. Um, so, yeah, so I had watched it high school. I feel like it's one. I, I don't know if I watched it one more time after, but I know the last time I watched it before this episode, I watched it last year in the middle of COVID coming in at this time. Um, it was still very fresh. Um, and so what were your thoughts, kind of initial thoughts on it? when kind of revisiting it again for the first time in a while. Yeah. I, I do think this is a movie that gets better on rewatch because mm-hmm. it's, it is something that you can, you know, once you kind of, no matter how you warn people, you're still going to be like searching for meaning and ties. Also, because I do think we are so conditioned and this, this movie was on the earlier end of that, like early 2000 spectrum of like, everything is connected. And I think, crashes on the, the pinnacle or the low point of that the type end, of yeah. film but especially in hindsight now we're so conditioned by like that type of movie and and love actually and mm-hmm. all those valentine's days and new year's eves yeah and mother's that day that yeah, afterwards. Yeah. we are kind of conditioned to be sitting and watching this movie and being like oh how does it all tie together yeah. and so when you i think when you come back to it and you can just let go of that and and take in the performances i don't i don't know that anything can match like seeing frank tj Mackey for the first time but you can still appreciate it you know coming back to it and and it doesn't i wouldn't say it appreciates on rewatch in the way that like boogie nights does which i think boogie nights is almost like a like a coen brothers movie where it just gets funnier and funnier and funnier each time you come back to it <laughs> yeah. um this one just if, if you can just kind of let go mm-hmm. i think it, it washes over you a lot if you're more receptive to it and, and yeah, you do yeah. let it wash over you when you come back to it, I, I think it's a better experience. I agree. Cause it's like to go with the length, I, I'll have some thoughts about the length later, but like for a movie, it's three hours. It de- I don't really feel it's length most of the time. Does that mean like there's moments I think that could like, could it be trimmed a little bit? Yes. Mm. But like, do I want to like, no, make this movie a two hour movie and I'll be like happy. I well, think yeah, it, well, and it also, I, I think the structure is so, you know bizarre that it, it does yeah. it throws you off in your mind i was talking to somebody recently about french dispatch and they were like that movie felt so much longer than an hour and 45 minutes and i was like because the structure i think the structure is like 
so thrown off for us we're we're so used to like even people who don't know the terms midpoint and 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 rising action and climax they still feel it so when you do sit in like a two hour and 40 minute james bond movie you can kind of start to feel like okay he which i I loved no time to die but you you know you do hit a point where you're like he should be in the bad guy's base by now (laughs) but when you watch a movie like this and it doesn't necessarily fall into just like what we've story structure that we've had hammered into us for yeah. years and years and years it does throw off your time your sense of time yeah. a little bit and that's the thing it's like going off the wavelength idea it's like if you if you if you're not able to be on the same wavelength this movie it's going to be a rough watch um at first we'll talk about that later when some of the critics that watched it yeah so looking at the whole like filmography of anderson i don't know if it's my favorite film by him hmm. but it's definitely one where it's it's probably the one i've seen the most oddly now that I think about it, as I say, it's not my favorite one, um, <laughs> but it, it's the one where yeah, it's just it's the one that I think a lot of people gravitate towards is the thing. It's either yeah. this or Boogie Nights kind of the thing, even though well, that would be can, considered a masterpiece. Come back to this when we talk about Anderson a little bit further, but yeah, some of the some of the recent Wes Anderson or Wes, sorry, some of the most recent P.T. Anderson movies are, you know, almost utter perfection. Yeah. And because of that, I have a soft spot in my heart for the for little bit of flaw that are so messy. Um, and I mean, still like expertly crafted. Still great. Still, but, so, um, yeah, it's, it's still, it's still a filmmaker that knows what he's doing. Yeah, you're never gonna beat the like energy of Boogie Nights, you know. Yeah, and and, and we can talk a little bit further on about specifically some of the casting choices and and performance choices he got at this point in his career. Yeah, maybe have have not shown up in the last couple of his films. I'll save that for later. Okay, yeah, I want to hear that. I want to hear that. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely like there's a lot more chaos in the visual style. I think at least camera moves. I think later in his stuff is more deliberate and specific, and I think sometimes that there's a more moving camera in this film. But we'll get into that. Let's get into how this movie got into production because it's 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 a story. At the age of 27, writer director Paul Thomas Anderson was on top of the world, or at least one of the most talked about names in Hollywood. With the release of his second film, Boogie Nights, Anderson was seen as the next big thing within American cinema, an alternative to the Tarantino-esque films or Sundance-inspired films that are popping up from many of the the uh, upcoming filmmakers in America. He was 27 when he did Boogie Nights, which is just insane to me. <laughs> um, Boogie Nights was a critical and commercial success, grossing $45 million against a $50 million, $15 million budget, um, and received three Oscar nominations. And with that, People wanted to be in business with Paul Thomas Anderson. Specifically, actors wanted to make movies with Paul Thomas Anderson. Anderson, however, was worried that Boogie Nights would not be a success at first, so he wanted to make another movie as quickly as possible. This is a fear that most filmmakers kind of have. Make another movie before they realize that you aren't really that good. Uh, But once Boogie Nights was released at Studio New Line Cinema, went to Paul Thomas Anderson and said, make whatever movie you want to make with us next. Nilan agreed to Anderson's next film without even hearing what the story was, and they even gave him final cut of the film, meaning they could they could not step in and change the filming or the editing of the film. So when the deal was done, Anderson began his creative process trying to figure out what his next film would be. The one thing he did have was the film's title, Magnolia. He stated in an interview that it was a name that somehow spoke to him. He just like he liked the way it looked in a way like this, these sometimes words just like stay with you as a creator of like, I like this title. 
I don't know what to do with it yet. So it just kind of stays in your mind. And for this mm-hmm. one, Magnolia was like that for him. It's also the name of a street, Magnolia Boulevard in San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles. And essentially Anderson's hometown, um, where a lot of kind of moments take place on Magnolia Boulevard in this film, but it's never fully like set. If you know LA, you'll know that it's take place kind of on there. Um, the next thing he knew was that he wanted to make a small and intimate film that he could shoot quickly in just 30 days. That changed. Uh, he then began mapping out his story, and it's always kind of interesting hearing a writer talk about how they come up with their ideas. And Anderson said he started off with writing out a list of images and ideas and themes and just words to try to gather some sort of story for this movie. Uh, he said the first image he had was the crying face of his friend and actress, Melora Walters. Uh, the next image was of an act was of actor, Philip Baker Hall, who's been in his previous two movies, walking up the stairs of an apartment complex to have a big confrontation with his daughter, played by Melora Wal- Walters. Um, while writing the script, Anderson began to be inspired by his hometown of the San Fernando Valley, and he wanted to make the greatest San- the greatest Valley movie of all time, is what he kind of said. Um, he was also inspired by several things that surrounded him in his life, including the death of his father, who died of lung cancer in 1997. His father, Ernie Anderson, was a television horror host for a syndicated show called Shock Theater that showed old movies, and he played a character named Gulaldi, uh, which would later become the name of Paul Thomas Anderson's production company. Um, it was mainly based out of Cleveland is what it was. So, like, he was a big kind of famous person in like the cleveland area his father ernie <laughs> anderson apparently when cleveland. he passed yeah when he passed away uh like they mentioned him on the drew carey show which takes place in cleveland i think even, even jim jarmusch talked about how like that was stuff he grew up watching um so yeah so anderson was also inspired by his time working as a production assistant on a quiz kids show or a kids quiz quiz show uh when he was starting out in the entertainment industry and one key component uh, that was a part of his inspiration for the film were the songs of Amy Mann. Anderson said that he had been listening to her songs over and over again, and they became an instrumental part in fleshing out the characters. The song that really inspired him was the song Wise Up, which he would eventually use in the actual film. As he began fleshing out his ideas and his story and his characters, he realized Magnolia would not be a small and intimate film in terms of no. uh, the amount of characters that he would be in it. Uh, he said there were so many actors and actresses he wanted to work with, so he decided to write parts for them in this film. I mean, you can see you can see how how he would think because you know he's sitting there, he's like, "Wow, Boogie Nights, we covered like." two decades almost it's like yeah. the 70s and the 80s it's a period it's a period he's piece like, he's like, like i'm just yeah. gonna set this present day it's gonna take place in one day it'll be nice and small <laughs> nice and small and he still i think he still sees it as a or at one point when it came out a small and intimate film because of like what it's talking about but it's it's still large and, and it has a big canvas it's a big mosaic as they say um mm-hmm. so he was getting close to finishing the script when he went up to william h william h macy's cabin in vermont and spent like a week or two completing the script. So he said there was, apparent, there was apparently a snake outside the cabin, and Anderson was afraid to go outside the cabin because of it, so it forced him to stay inside and just like work on the script constantly. He said he worked on the script for like eight months total, but like the last two weeks were like the most he worked on it probably in that period. After his first two films, Anderson had essentially created his own acting troupe. He would state in an interview with The Guardian that these are not people who are his employees, but they are his friends. Uh, and he wanted to write roles for them that he had not seen them play 
in their careers yet because he was like i love you guys we're friends you're part of kind of my group i want to give you stuff to like really chew on so actor john c Riley had been mostly mm-hmm. known as an actor who either played bad guys or like man children basically kind of dumb characters for lack of a better word and riley and anderson really wanted to see him play a love interest in a film um also riley had been playing around with his character of police officer jim curing before anderson even started writing a script because riley had grown a mustache and hmm. thought it was funny and started they started making parody videos of riley like he was on cops so they would just drive around la and anderson would shoot him <laughs> with a video camera and like jennifer jason lee was apparently in one and it was yeah so they just did it for fun and he took that and put that into the character for magnolia when writing the character for julianne moore uh he wanted to let her he wanted he wanted to get her to let loose and kind of go nuts in a certain way he said he never seen her really explode in a movie before and he thought she really she'd really do a character like that um for his good friend and frequent collaborator philip seymour hoffman he wanted him to play a very simple uncomplicated and caring character he said, I don't want to see him play another character character, if you know what I mean, which I think he succeeds at. I think this is like just a very down to earth, like in any in any other movie, this is like the the actor you don't really know. Does that make sense? It's like it's it's like it's kind of a forgotten role. Yeah, I think I don't think Kaufman ever really played. I agree. Another role like this. And it's and it's weird because most people. Yeah, like you said, you wouldn't cast him in this any other any other person he was so electric and so you know larger than life and mm-hmm. and so he was never just like the normal guy in a movie and so it almost takes knowing him enough to know that he's yeah. capable of not you know everyone knows he's capable of this but everyone no one knows that he's gonna like excel in this because they all think like oh you can't put philip seymour hoffman in that role and I, I well, it's like one of his warmest roles. I'm, I'm so glad that we have him in this role. And we'll talk more about that as we keep going. Um, and for William H. Macy, Anderson stated that he believed Macy was scared of big emotional parts because Macy thinks actors shouldn't cry. So he wrote him a big tearful like monologue, like for the it's the the bar scene. Yeah, because his his character in Boogie Nights was so cheerful. <laughs> <laughs> um. And then comes the biggest name of them all, Tom Cruise. So I'm not sure how much this is kind of common knowledge, uh, but Cruise is an avid movie watcher. He's gone on record several times stating he watches a movie a day. And the 1990s kind of became, because of his massive star power, he was kind of known to try and give like a young filmmaker a little bit of a boost. Um, Some examples um, was in 2002 for the film Narc, directed by Joe Carnahan and starring Ray Liotta and Jason Patrick. Cruz had like seen the film in a film festival, but no one was picking it up. So he bought the rights, came on as executive producer, and made sure it got a wide release because he thought it deserved to be seen. With 1996 film Jerry Maguire, written directed by Cameron Crowe, Cruz asked to actually read for the role to see if that see if he was right for the part because he didn't want to mess up Cameron Crowe's movie. I've also heard him say that he would go around to young filmmakers of films he liked, call him up, and tell him, hey, write me a part because I think your film's good. I want to see if you can like do something for me. And I'm not sure who all actually followed up on this, but I do know that someone did, and his name is Paul Thomas Anderson. Because <laughs> after watching Boogie Nights, Cruz called him up and told him he loved the film, and Anderson was going over to London to promote Boogie Nights. And Cruz in the middle of shooting, what movie was he shooting, Thomas? In London, in the late 90s, oh. for a long time. 
eyes wide shut. Well, all of all Basically, of the 90s, right? <laughs> shooting eyes wide shut. And Harrison's like, yeah, I think he'd been there for a year and a half when I like went and saw him. Yeah. Uh, so they agreed to meet, and Harrison came to the set of Eyes Wide Shut, actually met Stanley Kubrick uh, while he was there, and they talked about working together. And Anderson began to see him as this character known as Frank T.J. Mackey, this sleazy kind of pickup artist, motivational speaker, but didn't tell Cruz what he had in mind for him. Anderson went away for like eight and nine months, wrote the script. Once he finished it, he sent it to Cruz, and the next day, Cruz called him back saying, I'm in. But they did... He, they would chat for a few weeks, kind of discussing the character and how they liked working because it, it's reported that, like, I don't know how it's like internet kind of talk, but Cruz is a little hesitant to play a character of this nature, uh, specifically after just doing Eyes Wide Shut, but he finally agreed to it because this character, his character in Eyes Wide Shut is a very repressed type individual, like, very everything's very, like, internal mm-hmm. in a way, and this allows him to really just let loose. Um... So the script is written, the performers are cast, and locations are picked. So Thomas, what is one of your favorite scenes in this movie? Okay, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna hold some back because some some things I'm gonna bring up in our in our awards later, and I don't want to show my hand. <laughs> but one one hand I will show is when you look at, at at this movie in Boogie Nights, two of my favorite scenes that Paul Thomas Anderson has ever done, both have Alfred Molina. In them. <laughs> Uh-huh. First off, just gotta say it real quick. The scene <laughs> with Alfred Molina, Amazing. Sister Christian, and Boogie Nights is a masterclass in filmmaking. Um But this this scene is hilarious. And that's 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 the thing about Paul Thomas Anderson is like he these his movies like can be so dark and, and also yeah. funny, but it's not like it's not in a way that feels like mean spirited. Like you we, we so it's it's the scene in which Donnie's getting fired and um we can like we can feel bad for him but also take in and so i i will be nominating uh, <laughs> later on for our um our small part both alfred molina and uh miguel perez who i don't even think is in focus <laughs> in this scene but it just keeps going you don't need surgery don you don't need braces donnie braces, donnie. donnie you got struck by lightning why would you want to get braces you don't need braces donnie He's like, I need to get corrective reconstruction surgery. You don't need it. You just don't need it. What are you doing? What are you doing, Donnie? <laughs> and it's it's so funny because like, you know, and 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 you know, throughout his his storyline, he does kind of have this victim complex. But like, Alfred Alfred Molina is not being irrational <laughs> in this scene. <laughs> he's he's really got a good point, and he's he's playing that him as this yeah. like over the top character. But like he's he's yeah. he's in the right in this scene for sure. No, Malia is amazing. It's like it's like has he only been in this and Boogie Nights, like for Anderson movies? I think so. I think so. Yeah. I don't think I don't think he's been in any other ones. Um. No, Molina's always great. Yeah. He, yeah. He, Macy, because that scene that that scene's very kind of early on. But like it, it it's 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 a. Mm-hmm. It's a great scene for Macy because it's, it's the first time where like someone's actually telling him like what are you doing like what are you doing like, with this mm-hmm. like because then he's like he didn't he hire him because like he was Donnie Smith the like, the the quit the yeah, yeah it, he made a billboard he was like we put your face on a billboard told everybody to come to my store because the Wiz kid was working at my store and you met you have <laughs> terrible sales you borrow money, money from, from me yeah. yeah it's and that's the thing with this movie it's like you can take a very what Anderson can do. And just kind of said, like, take a very, like, ser- serious kind of moment in a character's life and still just add, like, kind of 
moments of comedy in it is the thing. It's like that his move, even his most dramatic films, there are like, they're funny, I think. And maybe, maybe not there will be blood in like the master, but like, there's like, there's, I drink your milkshake. will never. I mean, I don't know that that was intended to be funny. I have, I have, I have, I have my surgery, my oral surgery coming. What surgery? Oral surgery. Corrective teeth surgery. What is that? Braces. Braces? Yes. You don't need braces. Yes, I do. Your teeth are fine. Your teeth are straight. I need surgery. I need corrective oral surgery. Honey, ah, you got struck by lightning that time in Tahoe. You want a vacation? I don't think braces is a good idea. Solomon, just let, let me ask you once. Please, please don't do this. How are you paying for the braces, darling? I don't know. Oh, this is incredible. How much are braces anyway? It's, uh, I, it doesn't matter. It's like $5,000. I've seen it, I know. Oh, now you're pissing me off, though. This is fucking incredible. This is fucking stupid. You're paying $5,000 for braces you don't need? I've been a good worker. Don't do this, Danny. No need for braces, Danny. Where are you going to get the money? I, I don't know. You're going to ask me, weren't you? I have been a good worker. A good and no loyal worker. No need for braces, Danny. That is none of your business. I have been a good and loyal worker for you, you fucking asshole. Hey, fuck you, Danny. Watch it now. Some One of my favorite scenes, pretty much anything with Tom Cruise like re really mm-hmm. like anything yeah. with tom cruise yeah you could say any of the seminars interview any scene once he goes to to jason robot's house i'm gonna drop kick that dog if it comes anywhere near <laughs> well, me it's I'm so great it's like it's dog. at the door because again him and hoffman are just fantastic they don't have a lot of lines together but like for for those who don't know if you're coming in with magnolia so basically frank tj mackie who is this again pickup artist like very like misogynistic character and like how to how to get women basically and he his father jason robards um earl partridge is dying of cancer and philip seymour hoffman's trying to get in touch with his son frank tj mackey they, they're estranged and finally frank tj mackey shows up after because he hates his father because because earl abandoned his mother his dying mother and left them uh when he was a young kid so he hates his father shows up and so it's the moment when, when he comes in and like Hoffman's like, oh man, so happy. Like, thanks for coming on. It was so hard to find you. And he's like, you want to come in? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, Phil, I just want you to know if those dogs come near me, I'm going to drop kick. I'm going to drop kick them. Like, it's just like, it's just like kind of, it's a, it's a hard left. And the, the funny part is that Cruz will say it again later when he's like, he's like, when they're yep. about to go, he's like, okay, we'll go into the room. We'll do this. He goes, oh, I, Phil, I just, I just want, I'm, I'm serious. If the dogs come near me. <laughs> I'm gonna drop kick that. <laughs> well, it's it's such a great touch because I feel like uh in the hands of a lesser storyteller, once once she, he has that turn of like, okay, I'm gonna go see my father, you would I feel like almost anybody else would like drop the like stage act. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and it's that touch of like I'm gonna <laughs> drop kick a dog, like alpha male mentality that is like even if it is an act, like some of it has His personality into yeah, yeah his everyday life like he can't he can't not be frank dj Mackey, even though we are kind of seeing behind the facade now there's still some of some of that's still going to come through but yeah so so when he when he like it's 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 the oscar moment basically it's it's the it's the crying at jason robard's deathbed where it goes from like i hate you mm-hmm. you son of a bitch like I, I i i'm so i can't wait for you to die and then it's the turn of like don't die you asshole like it's like all of a sudden mm-hmm. this person that's never been in his life pretty much forever is now there's a possibility of him being gone and it's just it, it some would say like, this is not where someone would say it's melodramatically over the top but for some reason the way Cruz does it it's so 
realistic in like at least i think realistic in how like he reacts to his like father dying it's this like it's he yeah. he you can tell he has all these emotions built up he's built up for so long it's the, like when he's grabbing his hands where like he literally can't like physically like react as a human in a way it's like he, he has so much built uh, he's it's it's causing him physical pain that he like with with it yeah. and again to go off that it's also hoffman and hoffman's reaction to it in the background in the, in the background it's oh, even just so the good. way he moves the way he like moves where he's like out of focus it's just i think it's amazing how what hoffman does it hurts doesn't it huh? you were a lot of pain she was in a lot of pain Right to the end, she's a lot of pain. I know, because I, I was there, Earl. You didn't like illness, though, do you? I was there. She waited for your call. For you to come. scene i love kind of from this storyline is when hoffman calls yeah, oh for um grocery delivery and he's asking about the porn magazines and you're kind of like oh okay. like we don't really yeah. know him yet and you're like oh, okay this guy kind of like he's maybe he's yeah. a little creepy but he's just like just like oh you you guys have hustler oh oh okay and you're like wait does he know what he's doing and you you, you don't really realize until it gets there and he opens it up and he's like oh he's trying he knows that like the, that's where he's gonna find a phone number for for Frank, also just because we, you know, if anyone's seen Happiness, uh, <laughs> when Philip Seymour Hoffman gets on the phone, I'm telling you, man, it, it can get real gross. But <laughs> I'm telling you, I, I have, I, I think Hoffman is is the best phone actor that's ever graced cinema. I'm being serious <laughs> with this, with Lester Bangs and Almost Famous, with um, with mm. him and Happiness. I think he's like amazing on talking on the phone. It's like again. With that, I love the like. Yeah, it's the kind of awkwardness of just like, oh yeah, can I get like the like the is ordering the food. Oh, so yeah, yeah, you get Playboy, you get Playboy. And I love that moment when the 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 woman on the other line is like, once he orders the porn, she's like, and do you still want the other stuff? Like you know, yeah, people have called in and been like, oh, I need this, this, and this, and porn, and forget the other stuff. And it's he's like, like what? Yeah, no, what? I still what? need the other stuff. Yeah, I what? Just also what? Want what? The porn. what do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> uh, but then I love the scene. <laughs> Also, for Punch Drunk Love, also great phone scene. God, he's amazing. Oh my God. Best phone actor. I'm telling you, man. Um, yeah. So it's it's to like when he calls up the guy and he's just like, it's to like, you know, in the movie, like when, when you're calling, like when someone's calling and like, and like, this is that scene. This is that scene where you help me out. Am I gonna am I gonna step on your step on some info later if I bring up who's on the the line with him? No, go scene? ahead. I, I, I didn't so have. It, at when he's talking to people at Frank T.J. Mackey's uh, 
So the first person he talks to is played by Paul F. Tompkins. Okay. And then uh, comedian Paul F. Tompkins also like been on every comedy podcast ever. <laughs> if you listen to comedy <laughs> podcasts. Uh, yeah. And then Marilyn Rice Cub from everything, including Always Sunny and Tomorrow War um, is the is the one he's talking the the uh janet that he's talking to later that's like well, she, the, she's like guys like i don't, I don't care, care. What, what is his name i, I don't remember what yeah. that guy's name is but she's she's like i don't care get frank <laughs> good good boy or whatever she says to him yeah no so it's I, that scene and also what i love about with hot this is just hoffman again like this kind of caring character we're talking about it's like he's talking to this guy that he's never met and he's just like talking about how this guy's dying earl's dying of cancer and he's like, oh, that sucks. And he was just like, oh, my mom had that. And then it's like, oh, well, what'd she have? And then it's like, he gets to know him. And at the end of the mm-hmm. phone call, he's like, thanks, man. He goes, I hope you, I hope you and your mom do, do okay. Like Hoffman's character yeah. just like is, is so naturally good that he is like had created this bond in this very dramatic moment in a, in a, in a story and has created this somewhat bond with this guy over the phone. And he feels like connected mm-hmm. to him in some way. I think it's I think it's amazing. I think it's just amazing what yeah. Anderson's writing does with that and what Hop what Hoffman takes what Hoffman can do in that just small like that role where it's like he's not he's not really a main character in these plot in the in the in the kind of storylines, but he's like one of the most memorable characters in the movie. You know, and he's pretty out of it. I mean, like I said, he's dying. Dying of cancer. So it's brain and lung. My mother had breast cancer. Oh, I'm sorry. Is, is she all right? Is she... Oh, she's fine now. Oh, that's good. Yeah, it was scary though. Oh, it's a hell of a disease. Oh, it sure is. Yeah. So, uh, wait, I'm sorry, so why call me? <laughs> I know this sounds silly, and I know that I might sound ridiculous, like this is the, the scene of the movie where the guy's trying to get a hold of the long lost son, you know, but this is that scene. This is that scene. And I think they have those scenes in movies because they're true. You know, because they really happen. And you gotta believe me, this is really happening. Uh, another scene, just in general, it's like, I really do like John C. Riley just like talking to himself in a cop car. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, I, I do love it. You know, another one with, with kind of the humor of, of P.T. Anderson is the opening scene with, or the, you know, the, 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 with marcy i think that's that's the first scene that really shows us like oh this movie's gonna get like kind of yeah. weird <laughs> the, the line delivery <laughs> that 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 scene just like yeah keeps don't you go in there the, the don't you get in my like, hallway rising and rising he's like marcy i'm gonna need you to not move that couch any further <laughs> and then he finds the body and she's like that's not mine <laughs> whoa marcy <laughs> no hey, riley just again so, and again i love the like he has the like the phone call thing too of just like listing like because it's a dating service and here's the thing too I, i'm noticing what there, you know what i was reminded of when he was doing the dating service thing hmm. that that thank god it's friday with the, with the short guy oh yeah dating the service electronic electronic dating, dating service yeah. he's doing the same thing with the phone a phone phone call start dating service i want to bring this up here too so Anderson's a lot of Anderson's films are about like surrogate families. Mm-hmm. It's a it's Boogie Nights. It's um, uh, even to some extent like the Master or the Master or even real families like say Punch Drunk Club. And it's all about usually families coming to like finding family and coming together. And Magnolia is one out of all of his films where I think it's about the lack of family. Mm-hmm. 
everything else is about them having family or trying to to keep it if there will be blood that way or like trying to like see like to 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 have what's they like make what's their work essentially or create your own and this is one where like everyone is disconnected from someone that they wish they had yeah i mean i, I think ultimately it's about connection yeah. and, and like you said like disconnection even outside of family whether it's romantic or i mean you know let's take take stanley stanley the 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 whiz kid who, who spends every day in the library he, he yeah he, his father is emotionally abusive possibly physically abusive but also like those he like he should be friends with those yeah. two kids that are on the show yeah. with him and they don't care no. about him they're they're the same age as him and they're using him for money yeah like, they're just like oh nobody on that whole show even cares if he has to go to the yeah. bathroom except like, Luis uh, guzman he is the only guy like the uh, adults he's like hey what's going on they're like mind your business like he's the only one who, he's the <laughs> only one who cares about that kid yeah it's a it's it, i think it's definitely about feeling alienated and 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 having your ties cut and in some of these storylines we're seeing people giving given the chance to recreate those Mm -hmm. ties in in you know specifically if you take laura walters storyline it's the the movie is about her creating some ties she's someone who we see in the beginning is very much about no ties you know no strings attached and by the end she's formed this bond with john c Riley and also reconnected with her mother but by the you know concurrently in that same storyline philip baker hall starts out with all these people around him at the beginning of the film and by the end he's alone so it's it's yeah it's it's about connection and severing connections and and the opportunity to create these connections and and whether or not we'll take them and and yeah and then ultimately not everyone is connected <laughs> yeah, yeah and everyone's connected yeah and, and but you also have like this idea of love of like you also there's a running there's a running theme of cheating i've noticed in this movie yeah like mm-hmm. it's it's philip ba- it's philip baker hall uh who cheated who talks about he cheated on his wife it's julianne moore talking about he's cheated on she's cheated on uh jason robards it's jason robards having cheated on tom cruise's mother like there's always there's a big confession from three ke- people about how they cheated on people and now they regret it tremendously. And well, Julianne mm-hmm. Moore's thing, it's the like, sh- for the, for the person it's like, it's, it's like they regret it. And now they're in a moment in time where they can't do anything about it because the person they mm-hmm. regret it with is like, it's, if it's Jason Robards, it's like she, his, his, the wife that he loved is dead. Uh, Julianne Moore, who has now like fallen for Jason Robards, he's dead he's dying and there's no place i'm watching him die basically and i don't want any of his money now because she's like i married him for his money because he was an old man and now like i'm in love with him and i don't want it it's all about these characters like searching for something in some way and some realizing they still they have they don't have time for it any they don't have time to find the thing they're looking for also to kind of connect to the other things very we said very altman very very shortcuts very very shortcuts is mm-hmm. kind of the big thing yeah and that leads me because shortcuts is a very similar thing towards the end where it's con- has all these stories they're kind of interwoven and then you kind of have this big moment that comes out of nowhere that affects the story so we have to i think we should talk about the frog moment here how do you feel about the frog moment in this movie of the the frogs raining down from the sky I, I'm, I I know it's coming every time I watch this movie and I'm blown yeah, away by it. Yeah, it still hits me every time. The way the way it is shot is so like visceral yeah. and it's funny, but it's also disgusting mm-hmm. and terrifying. It is it is like every emotion yeah. when when that happens. Um, 
still not entirely sure i understand it but you know what you don't have to to. with all hands like coincidences is the thing it's It's, yeah it's just like like any day just i think it's there's i mean there's so many theories i'm not going to posit the meaning (laughs) of magnolia here necessarily but there is this idea of like this this started out as any other day and so many of these characters are receiving monumental opportunities by the end of this day and and it's almost this idea of like you're no matter how your day starts off it could be literally biblical proportions yeah. by the end of yeah. the day every day should not be wasted um so yeah I, it still yeah it still hits me every time just the sound effect the sound effect Ugh. is just like the special effects are so well done i mean i know a lot of it's probably fairly practical but even specifically i'm thinking of the scene when we follow the one that falls directly through yeah. philip baker hall's uh skylight I mean, you know that had to be CGI, but it is fantastically well done. Yeah, the movie, again, I said this earlier, but in the movie, it's just a lot of climaxes. And it just feels like every, like, so, er, like er, any moment something big can happen, these characters. Well, and that's, that's something I mentioned the score earlier. So often the score is just this music that is just like building and building and building. And even just the way that the chords are orchestrated, they keep going up. And, then, and it's done in this way that it, it feels like it's just going, you know, it's going up and up and up and they'll take some like steps back. But the way it sounds to us and the way it works psychologically is that it's just continuing to raise and raise and raise the tension in these. Well, again, scenes. like I said, he, he talked about how he was inspired by a day in the life by the Beatles. And that song has that where it's mm-hmm. the like, can this go any longer? And then it drops and you get the Paul McCartney section and then it comes back up and builds up again. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So, with all that, we'll move on to Onset Life. So, filming for Magnolia would begin on January 12th, 1999. In terms of the visuals of the film, production designers Mark Bridges and William, Al- William Arnold and director of photography Robert Ellswit worked closely with Anderson to develop a style for the film. Bridges would state that Magnolia is a movie that is very much about a time, 1990, and a place, the San Fernando Valley. Even though the film is contemporary, we approached it as a period piece, because we really wanted to peg the way things are current, or the way things are currently, the indi- individuality and the estrangement, the media influences, and the use of clothes as hiding places. Which I want to bring up here because Anderson mostly does period pieces. When you look at his filmography, it's like this Punch Drunk Love and like Hard Eight are the only three movies that are not a period piece. They're all of a specific time and changing of the time. And with Magnolia, it's present day, but they, I think, that as as he's, as the production designer said, there's so much detail to it, where it now like feels like they're still t- talking about a specific place and time. Like we talked about how Thank God's mm-hmm. Friday kind of misses, like they're trying to t- tell that, and it kind of like goes away, so you can't really connect to it. But this is still like because they're so detailed, like what is happening right now to the smallest detail it affects it it, it, it's, it still holds up because of that hmm. the team also made sure that there was a very tight color palette specifically looking at the colors of the magnolia flower using mostly greens browns and delicate off-whites when it came to shooting the wise up scene where everyone across san fernando valley is singing uh amy mann's song anderson said he thought <laughs> he thought a lot about this moment uh and he said he had to trick everyone into doing it by having Julianne Moore do it first because he knew she'd be game to set to, she'd be game and she'd set the pace for it all and everyone wanted to do it because she did it. Um that you know I the the when I was watching it this time 
there's a shot of Phil Summer Hoffman doing it with Jason Robards doing it in the background. And I, I literally had that thought. I was like, how did PTA get Jason Robards <laughs> to like basically sh- shoot a Amy Mann music video in the middle of this and, movie? And, and the answer is Julianne Moore. <laughs> Good for her. Good for her. Um, yeah, because they shot, they shot a lot of this movie in sections. Like they like took each storyline as it came. It wasn't a lot of crazy stuff. I think it's like it's either Julianne. I think Julianne Moore's story might have been shot first, or Tom Cruise's was shot like first or second because they they those kind of interconnect. And I think yeah, I'm sure they did. Those and I think Cruise also had to go off and shoot Mission Impossible too, so that's why they were shooting his early. The worst one. Who said that? I didn't hear that. <laughs> Um, I have a friend that just got upset by that comment. Um, <laughs> is it John Woo? Or are you best friends with John? Yeah, Woo I'm best friends with me? John Woo. No, no, it was not John Woo. Even though if you're John Woo, if you listen to the show, you're great. Um, so when shooting the What Do Kids Know, they actually did shoot a full episode, like the full episode of that show. Of course they did. He <laughs> he always does that. When you go on Paul Thomas Anderson's IMDb. There's so much supplement, and I mean this was pre-internet i guess he like there's so much supplemental material that he shot for stuff and i'm yeah. not i'm not complaining because he gave the world the gift of that that reenactment of that commercial <laughs> it's so dumb <laughs> from punch yeah, Club, it's but it's King. hilarious i'm fine did you get the shot did you get the shot <laughs> i landed on the guitar <laughs> oh man i got phelps again punch Rick love yeah great and speaking of infomercials he also shot an infomercial with tom cruise for this Mm -hmm. but apparently by the way they actually ran it late night after they did it like they actually like they actually they actually (laughs) ran an infomercial of tom cruise as frank tj mackey doing seduce and destroy called that number they were like hey if you call that number like it went to it was tom cruise's actual voice like promoting the movie or whatever this is tom cruise (laughs) please don't Don't be like like that. that Uh, for the iconic segment in which the torrential rain of toads hits magnolia boulevard roughly eight thousand rubber frogs were produced and allocated f- to film the scene uh cgi frogs were also used sparing the harm of real frogs during production um good good for the frogs when shooting also good for yeah. whoever whoever made that those frog guts great like, job fantastic job my mother who hates frogs will probably not watch this movie ever because of this moment in time <laughs> it feels so weird because it is literally five minutes out of a three hour of movie just raining frogs just raining frogs yep uh, so while shooting the reunion of Frank T.J. Mackey and his father, Philip Seymour Hoffman would state that the scene wasn't working that well, and Cruz told Anderson that he didn't feel the lines were working for the moment. Anderson told him to improvise and think about when his father actually died, because Cruz's father had actually died back in 1984 from cancer at the age of 50. Hoffman would state the scene, the oh. scene seen in the film was improvised. The, the, the scene that was improvised from Cruz is the actual scene in the movie when he's crying over his father and Hoffman's actual reaction in the moment is what's shown in the movie when he's like crying and like kind of like shocked by what Cruz is doing Uh, because he was taken aback by how far Cruz went in that moment in time. Um, One interesting moment from the set happened during the opening segment of all the urban legends. Uh, For the 1911 segment, they actually shot on an early 1900s uh, Pathé silent silent film hand-cranked camera for those moments to get that actual thing. Um, So Anderson's original plan was to shoot that film in 30 days when he first started writing it. Uh, But the the script, or that soon changed to about 79 days. It would then Mm -hmm. increase 
to 90 days with an extra 10, 10 wow. days of second unit shooting, finally ending on June 24th, 1999. So it sounds like they, they came back and forth a lot because of all the people, because 90 days is, that's like six months they just shot right there. And that's like three months worth. Yep. So they must have like. Yep. I've been on a 90 day shoot before. <laughs> and it was a, uh, it was a much bigger movie yeah. than this. Um, so that leads us to the aftermath portion of Magnolia. Because of Anderson's final cut privilege, New Line, the house that Freddie built, uh, was not able to cut any of the <laughs> was able to cut any any of the film's three three hour runtime. But An- they, Anderson said they were totally fine with it, and he would actually cut several sections of the film, including one supporting character entirely, the character of Worm, uh, the older son that kills Marcy's boyfriend or husband. Oh, that's the, that's what's kind of excised from the movie. Uh, he's never actually shown, and Worm was actually played by Orlando Jones. Uh, but all the scenes were cut from the film. Did you want to add anything about the the worm segment, Thomas? Here, yeah. So Anderson, uh, some they ran some test screenings, and it became clear that something needed to be left out. And the um, the quote that I've read from him is he felt like that specific storyline tied it, itself up a little too neatly, and he didn't want it. Interesting. <laughs> this this will speak to people's reviews later that didn't like it being not tied up um but yeah it was a storyline in which worm we found out that the young boy who um, dixon dixon rapped, is the name yeah yeah who who rapped for john c Riley earlier which if you break down that rap is like tell it, he touches on like everyone's storyline yeah. within the rap but um worm is his father and later worm runs into stanley at the diner i'm not entirely sure how stanley ends up at a uh-huh. diner um he like runs away and worm runs into him at the diner with the with the idea like recognizes him from tv and is going to rob Mm -hmm. him and is like starts talking to him and they both realize that they have like abusive fathers worm as we know has killed his father that maybe not that day but yeah recently has killed his father or or like marcy's husband or whatever like like whatever like father figure at least yeah yeah um and so he ends up deciding he's not gonna rob stanley Mm -hmm. but then uh, the kid does like pulls pulls John C. Riley's gun on Stanley and it's like you have to give us the money and Stanley's like I haven't won the money I just I just lost the mm-hmm. show. Um, I so, didn't read that part. I knew about yeah, the other stuff, but I didn't read that part. Yeah, it gets intense. But also, you know, maybe if you're cutting something, having a child pull a gun on another child is is a little bit much. So um, and it happens when like the 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 frogs are falling is what it is. Apparently, mm-hmm. is yeah. It's it's after he's discovered. Basically, he goes out in the parking lot while it's it's while when he goes out and finds Julianne Moore is while like Worm is talking to Stanley and decides not to rob him. That, uh, that okay. is happening while the kid goes out and finds Julianne Moore and calls 911 for her. Interesting. Okay. So, and yeah, now it's like that's just kind of all that storyline's just excised. And that's, mm-hmm. I think that's the last time you see him kind of is like the Julianne Moore like telling them about it. Yeah, yeah, he's he's it cuts back over and he's like yeah. hiding in a car. And a worm uh, doing his and a worm kind of like pops up like twice or something is what it is. Like because mm-hmm. yeah, he still yeah they, they get they get the gun uh, and I think he gets Dixon at one point like from an apartment when they're watching the quiz show. Yeah, because yeah, they're watching the quiz show where the kid's on, and that's probably how I reckon. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Well, there you go. Um, so while New Line allegedly didn't complain about the runtime uh, once production began, Anderson told them it would be around three hours. Um, the issue that came up was with Magnolia's marketing. Newland Cinema wanted to promote the film as a Tom Cruise movie, 
but Anderson fought against it, saying it was an ensemble movie. Apparently, Anderson was also not happy with the way New Line marketed Bookie Nights, and he didn't want that to happen again. So Anderson designed the movie poster himself and cut the film's trailer as well, shooting specific scenes that were only used in the trailer. Wow. So he didn't just have Final Cut. He had marketing control yeah, as well. Yeah, even though... And okay. he actually... So he actually got his way. He did... He, later, he said he realized uh, that he had to learn to fight without being a jerk, and I was a bit of a baby. At the first moment of conflict, I behaved in a slightly adolescent knee-jerk way. I just screamed. <laughs> so he realizes he kind of like messed, kind of messed up. The film will be released on December 17th, 1999 in seven theaters before finally getting a wide release on January 7th, 2000. Very crowded December in 1999 with movies like The Talented Mr. Ripley, Galaxy Quest, Man on the Moon, The Hurricane, Any Given Sunday, Girl Interrupted, and The Green Mile were all released in that month. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Magnolia will be met with critical praise from majority of the major critics, uh, but it was met with some negative reviews from the guest reviewers who came on Siskel and Ebert's at the movies. Did you watch both those clips? I did. I did watch both of those, um, which I thought was hilarious. I you know, Raj just like, God, recently, like, man, where's why, 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 why couldn't Gene be here for this movie? Well, I do, I do love so so. I, Gene, Gene had passed had away, passed away recently, passed away recently. Yes, and they were like kind of trying out guest critics on the show. And I think the key to so if you go watch, they had two different guest critics who were on to, and and talked about Magnolia on two different episodes. Yeah, one one was about one was about uh, like it actually coming out and reviewing it, and one was about like the worst of the year. And there's one during the worst of the year when Gene like does like an office like straight into camera like can you believe this guy? Oh, when, when Roger. Roger does, yeah. And uh, and like, so watching both of those, I I, I recently my like current kind of white noise at work is to just put on siskel and ebert videos yeah which has been fascinating but i'm I'm getting a much better feel for like their dynamic and um so when we were watching both of those i was such a such a film nerd thing to do by the way i gotta say like (laughs) sorry Sorry, guys Um, i love it i love it i was watching roger get so flustered and i thought i thought i want to go see and he brings up boogie nights yeah and i was like i want to go see what gene what he and gene said about boogie nights so i went back and watched it and I think you can completely understand. You can read Roger's mind in those two Magnolia scenes. Yeah. If you go back and watch him and Gene debating Boogie Nights, because Gene is the one who introduces Boogie Nights, and he says this is an incredibly ma- well-made film. This is like the cast is amazing. This is easily Burt Reynolds' like best performance. Paul Thomas Anderson is like someone to watch out for, but it didn't resonate with me because it didn't have anything to say. And Roger goes like, you're crazy. This is the best <laughs> film of the year. Yeah. But And they go back and forth and back and forth. But Gene is able to say like, this movie is like remarkably well made. I, I am, have so much respect for everyone involved in it. It just didn't quite Hit me. resonate for me. Yeah. It's still, it's still a thumbs up for him. Yeah. But like he, he, like Roger is still like inflamed that he's doing this, but it's so much more of like a civil debate because he can admit like, yes this is incredible he's not saying like this is an awful movie yeah just because it didn't resonate with me makes it a terrible movie those two critics that they're putting roger up against later are both like i didn't get it it's a bad movie it's and a bad he's movie. like no that's not how this works <laughs> you can just she's like it's like when she's talking about it the, the female critic for the first time she's like it almost sounds like you like this movie yeah he, because he he introduces it on that one and yeah. she's, she just goes like it almost sounds like you like this movie he's like like it i have it on my top 10 of the year <laughs> and she's like 
<laughs> and she's going and saying, he's like, but that's the point, Joyce. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, none of it connected in the end. He's like, that's the, the point. point. <laughs> <laughs> and then I love that the other dude's just like, this this young filmmaker needs like to be back in the old Hollywood days where he has a producer just throw the script at, back at him and tell him to go make rewrites. And he's like, what are oh you talking God. about? Yeah. Yeah, that's what when he's debating him, uh, I think it's Joel Siegel. Yeah. Um, when he's debating him is when he has that moment. He like looks directly into camera and you can just, just see him go like, how am I, my career is finished like without Gene? Like, I just can't do this. Yeah, his face is just because he goes like, well, I guess we agree to disagree then or whatever. <laughs> Shout out Richard Roper. He might not have lived up to, to the status of Gene, but at least at least Roger could stand Same. him. <laughs> Yeah, so he, so yeah, Ebert would say in one of his reviews, like, this is an act of filmmaking. It draws us in and doesn't let go. So, yeah, he loved the movie. He loved it. Um, other people that loved it, uh, fame director Ingmar Bergman would say, Magno- or he say he was a fan of Magnolia, calling it one of the best wow. examples of American cinema at that moment in time. Wow. Imagine Ing- imagine being Paul Thomas Anderson. Ingmar <laughs> Bergman says he likes one I of know. your films. Oh, my God. Yeah, I know. Crazy, right? Um, after he just called Orson Welles a hack. I mean, it's kind of amazing. Um, Did Altman see it? I don't. I pro- I mean, probably. I don't know. I don't know if I found anything about Altman talking about. It, but Altman, because I mean, Anderson and him were close at a certain point. Because mm-hmm. Anderson was his like ghost ghost director, like kind of standby for a Prairie Home Companion, yeah. like Altman's last movie. Um, so yeah, so much of the praise would go to the film's stat cast, specifically the performance of Julianne Moore and Tom Cruise. Moore and Cruise would both receive Golden Globe and Screen Actors Guild nominations, with Cruise actually winning the Golden Globe. Interesting fact I apparently found out, New Line actually did Oscar campaigns for mostly everyone, but they only they billed everyone as supporting except one person that was billed as a lead. Can you guess who was billed as a lead for this movie? Oh, man. Uh... Allegedly from the internet that said this. Not Cruz. <laughs> not Cruz. Cruz. No, not it wasn't Cruz. not Cruz. He, he got supporting nominations. Who would I if I watched this movie and I would say who is who is a lead in this movie? I have no idea. Melora Walters? I, like, you're you're close. Think of, like, you're close. Who ties the most together? Uh, Philip Baker Hall? John C. Riley. John C. Riley, okay. Because you got him with the William H. Macy thing later. Like he's that's mm. also great. It's just like, hey, what are you doing, man? Like, let's put this money back. He, also, just a good hearted person, John C. Ryan, this movie. Um, the film would eventually receive three Oscar nominations, one for Anderson's screenplay, one for Any Man's song Save Me, and one for Best Supporting Actor for Tom Cruise. And to this day, I still think this is one of the most stacked nominee pools for this character of or for this category in one year. So here are the five nominees for Best Supporting Actor. Mm-hmm. Haley Joel Osment, The Sixth Sense. Okay, yeah. J- Jude Law, Talent and Mr. Ripley. Wow, okay. Tom Cruise, Magnolia. Mm-hmm. Michael Clark Duncan, Green Mile. <laughs> Michael Caine, Michael Caine, Cider House Rules. Oh my God. Yeah. Like, there's like, not one that's like a missed beat. Does that make sense? It's, it really is just like, oh, I know all of those performances, and those performances are all really great. Mm-hmm. Michael Caine won probably my least my lowest pick my least favorite of those five yeah same i agree completely who would you pick i'd go with Cruz. to be honest i would go Cruz as well i think he's that good i think it's so different than anything he's ever played Mm -hmm. can i can i talk about my my paul thomas anderson theory here yeah part of what i love about this early period of paul thomas anderson is he is working with people that like shouldn't work and i and i totally understand (laughs) the like Cruz. Cruz wanted to be in this, but like you said, he might have been doubtful of 
of this character once yeah. he got there. And it yeah. is. I mean, he's the biggest star in in America, in the world, probably at this point in time. But it works so perfectly because of that energy, that fire that he's got. And I, and he and so it's this and it's in his Paul Thomas Anderson's writing. It's his direction. It's it's knowing Cruz's other performance. It's that, you know, that film nerd, whatever they call this. The, you know, they had the film school brats. This is like the, the video store brats. It's it's like knowing everything in Tom Cruise's career, bringing it all together to make this character. And and the same thing, like Mark Wahlberg should not work in Boogie Nights. Mark yeah. Wahlberg has said since that he he didn't even want to be he regrets being in Boogie Nights, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but it, he, Anderson makes it work, and you and I have had yeah. so many discussions about Adam Sandler <laughs> and whether or not Adam Sandler wants to be a good actor. Yeah. And Paul Thomas Anderson was the one who, like, I mean, now everyone goes, "Oh, the Safdie brothers." Like, it was it was Paul Thomas Anderson that like pulled it out of him, and now it's like you know. Daniel Day-Lewis is going to be good, you know, no matter who directs yeah. him. I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha, Daniel Day-Lewis yeah. is going to be Daniel Day-Lewis. At a certain point, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Joaquin's going to be Joaquin. Um, so that that is kind of the energy I miss, which is also why I'm very excited for Licorice Pizza. Licorice Pizza. You have two non-actors in the lead. Which is coming out this week as this, mo- as this episode's yeah. released. So that, that so. Is, that's part of the reason why Licorice Pizza feels like this kind of reinvigoration. I don't, I'm not going to go like, oh, I want to go back to the old Paul Thomas Anderson. I'm not going to go, you know... Yeah. Magnolia is better than there will be blood, but there was that like exciting aspect of those those movies being like I don't know if this person's going to be good or not. Yeah, well, even, yeah, even Burt Reynolds to an extent yeah. in Boogie Nights, yeah. it's just like that feels like an odd Heather choice Graham. to put Burt Reynolds in that movie. Heather Graham, I mean, even Louis Guzman, Louis Guzman. That's why with Licorice Pizza, like well, he's using Hoffman's, he's using Philip Seymour Hoffman's son in the lead. He's using um elena haim as as like the um and then you have the the filler people of the sean penn bradley cooper's like in the other roles tom waits tom waits <laughs> thank you but like yeah so yeah it's it feel i agree with you it feels like the characters that du- that's why i think he's so great at is like and this is what tarantino got praised for as well it's like reinvigorating a person you know and have known for years and giving a whole new image to them. It's about being movie literate. It's about being able to watch. Yeah. yeah. It's about being able to watch Top Gun and go, what if Maverick hated women? <laughs> it, it, and that's the same thing. It's the same thing Tarantino did early in his career. You know, it's watched yeah. Saturday Night Fever and said, you know, what if, what if what Tony, that you know, it? had to join up with the mob later? Like, it's 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 watching these other performances and going i can shape this into something that this person would never do on their own yeah and that's what he said when he was like when he was meeting tom cruise in london he was just like oh i think i have an idea for mm-hmm. you Ooh, like i don't i'm not gonna tell you though i'm not gonna tell you <laughs> what i have for you um so yeah i agree with you on that i agree and i think that goes into the whole thing with the paul thompson because I, I had this discussion last night uh with our friends here in la about I feel like many of Paul Thomas Anderson's like fans, they're like Anderson bros, like misunderstand like how he, like what he does, like what like the things he's interested in. Does that make mm. sense? Like we talked about this, like the the, the recent article of him like praising Shang Chi and praising Venom Two and talking about how he likes Will Smith as an actor and people. And I'm like, don't let the video store people see this because like they'll be upset because they're given like. <laughs> one star reviews to saying like, this isn't cinema. And then you got Paul Thomas saying, like, Oh no, it's a great movie. It's like, it's, it knows what it is. Like, it's like, that's why I think people forget is like, 
he and like those video store guys are like are people who will make what considered what is considered lowbrow and turn it highbrow. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I for some reason I think fans of theirs think whatever they do is highbrow. And they only like highbrow things where it's like it's a it's a mixture of everything. I just said it's a mixture of of looking at Top Gun or Days of Thunder and being like, cool, let's make that romantic lead or whatever. Let's make him Frank T.J. Mackey or what or let's make Burt Reynolds the director of 1970s porn. Like it's like it's like let's just do that. And I feel like people because he had like I said, he's movie literate and has that knowledge mm-hmm. anyway. Off that note, um, real quick, let me tell you what's nominated for Best Picture that year, because also uh, big year. 1999 film, big year for film, one of the greatest of all time. Best Picture, Sixth Sense, The Insider, The Green Mile, The Cider House Rules, and American Beauty. Magnolia was not nominated. Oof. Oof. That's a bad look, gotta say. (laughs) All right, so... At the time of the film's release, Anderson stated that Magnolia, for better or worse, will be the best film I ever make. (laughs) But years later, his view of Magnolia has changed. On Reddit, when he was doing an AMA for a fam thread, people asked him about what would he do differently if he had to shoot Magnolia again now. He said, I would chill, chill the fuck out and cut 20 minutes, is what he said. (laughs) Um, In 2015, on WTF with Mark Maron, Anderson stated when asked about the film, he goes, oh, I'd slice that thing down. It's too long. It's unmerciful how long it is. (laughs) So he really thinks it should have been shorter. But even with that, because I love the comments in red, they're just like, how dare you, Paul Thomas Anderson? That movie's perfect. And I was like, it's this movie. Get over it. What what if what if Paul Thomas Anderson is in his later years just turns George Lucas and recuts all of his films? (laughs) That would infuriate some people. Anyway, so people still love it. So going into that, what worked about this movie, Thomas? Cast. Cast is is something that was so important in that that era of filmmaking because, you know, like we were talking about with the video store brats, you didn't always get Tom Cruise. And even if you did get Tom Cruise, yeah. you still had to fill out like the rest of your production with people. And and so I, I, I truly do think that that Paul Thomas Anderson coming off of his inspiration by Robert Altman did build like one of the best acting troops of all time. And, oh yeah. And um, all the way from, from Luis Guzman and Alfred Molina up to Philip Seymour Hoffman, just an incredible eye for talent. And everyone is at play here and everyone, regardless of how you, Julianne Moore is swinging for the fences in this movie. And, and that's something you, you brought up, you brought up melodramatic earlier. I do want to say I am firmly in the, and this is a very Roger Ebert thing for me to say, if a movie wants to be a melodrama and it yeah. nails it, I I hate when critics level that as like a, a negative. Um, I've got to stand up for my boy Derek Sean France here. Only makes melodramas. And um, and like he made... He made uh, uh, was it Light Between the Oceans? Yeah, he made Light Between about? the Oceans. And everybody's like, oh, this movie's yeah. melodramatic. Two stars. I'm like, what? Yeah, that's what it wants to be it's a melodrama <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it accomplished everything it wanted to do well i had this conversation this is about side to go topical now it's like yellowstone's this way i think we're like people like oh like it just goes crazy and gets like very melodramatic i was like well it's it's set up as a melodrama yeah. so that it's makes a soap perfect opera. sense it is literally a soap <laughs> opera it is, you know. and and if so you, if you do that well then good for you like i don't i don't yeah. know when that turned into a thing that like melodrama was like automatically negative but 
if that's what you want to be your um, yes your movie about frogs raining out of the sky doesn't necessarily have to be absolutely accurate to human emotion like um and i and yeah that seems a little bit over the top but that i think she absolutely nails the energy of this movie when she's in that pharmacy and she's like screaming yeah. at the pharmacist pat healy uh, pat healy yeah but uh who plays two two roles in the movie by the way pat really? healy plays the the so he plays the pharmacist that gets killed in the urban legend story oh yeah his name's ed and then he plays the pharmacist wow. in the present day thing is ed, ed jr is the name on his name tag <laughs> ed jr um but yeah I, I think everyone in this cast is is incredible and and he he is an actor's director for sure and it it, it pays off wonderfully here well i think it's amazing too with the cast it's like then you have people who like never like not so they, they never act again because they do act but they're they don't become names like it's like uh um with the interviewer and in, um the frank tj mackey saints mm-hmm. yeah she's great in this uh april grace is, is guinevere like has a pretty meaty role and like she just does like like, like i feel like like walk on roles and mm-hmm. in, in like shows and movies now and i think she's great i mean, even the kid's great i think who plays stanley oh, i yeah. think for what it is i think i think he's as as uh so yeah i think he's able to just really work with so many great people you get cameos by uh Patton oswalt mm-hmm. early on clark gregg is the floor director for uh for the for the quiz Neil show Flynn of uh of scrubs fame oh really <laughs> he's, he's in one of the the early like vignettes kind of like pat oswald oh yeah, yeah you're right he is he is also from the middle right yeah. yes also from the middle the middle yeah he's in the opening scene henry gibson as a as a thurston thurston howl as the the bar guy who's mm-hmm. trying to get the bartender over so yeah i i think visually i think the film's stunning i think the score amazing direction's amazing i think the way he uses san fernando valley i think is we're like it's it's very la but like could also be it's a story about any like, about anyone basically if that makes sense um okay so did anything not work about this movie i think the score is distracting sometimes I, i've i've alluded to this a little bit throughout the episode but um oh interesting i don't know if it's the mix or okay i i i because i'm fully i'm fully on board with film score love film score and and like we were talking about earlier that the way that it builds on itself but but mm-hmm. it sh- sometimes like that shouldn't be the first thing that's on your mind in some scenes and maybe it's me maybe i'm paranoid i, I listen maybe i listen yeah. to too much of it but there were multiple scenes where i was just like oh wow the score is like going for it right now and you don't you know <laughs> the only time you really need that is like in a big action scene or something you know in in like yeah. dialogue scenes you don't want to be fair. sitting there going like wow they are really amping up the score right now um yeah and maybe it's just that there was so much to score <laughs> because there is kind yeah, of constant maybe. score in this in this film yeah it doesn't let up the pace does not let up it's constantly the score is constantly moving forward yeah, and I, it, it does sometimes yeah it, it sometimes feels like at some point they made the call of like this is a three-hour movie we need to keep it going let's do that yeah. with score and and that okay that does stick out to me sometimes okay that's fair anything else that you wanted to um I have two. Th- I have two things. That's that's the main thing for me, especially on this on this rewatch. Yeah, you could trim twenty minutes off of this for sure. That's what I was gonna say. Yeah, I was gonna say like I, I think somewhere in the like hour and a half, two and a half hour mark, is where he could probably cut a little bit. He's, he's got me. some some really long takes, and I appreciate the like naturalism of a long yeah. take. But a, a movie of this scale, sometimes we don't need to see like two people looking at each other in silence for like that long. 
are, are quite <laughs> yes. so many shots of the dogs running around the house and barking oh yeah yeah i, th- I think that's the one thing with this is like also like the shot of the do- like the, the whole the dogs eating the pill or mm-hmm. whatever like, didn't, like one of the dogs die yeah. or something because of that yeah i think he said like he had he had just like almost like too many like small plot like subplots that go off of like certain things is what he would kind of take away yeah that kind of goes with like the murder plot feels odd to me it's like the dixon character just feels a little odd to me still Mm. because like we never fully like it's set up as one it's like one of those things where like it's set up as something kind of big and then it just like fades away Mm. i do like the scene with john c riley the, the marcy stuff and i think he said he kept it in there like to add like a little bit of flavor to it in a way but uh something about just like, i feel like you can I, I don't know if you need like the dixon watch because like, hey, you have dixon the kid like watching the quiz show thing mm-hmm. like at some point and like worm comes and gets him like do you need that extra scene because we never come back and pay that off later do we just sh- or do you just show dixon later going to julian moore's car and that's like the next time you see him right like there's other ways to kind of trim certain things out all right alternate universe cast people who were up for roles some of the stuff feels like it's the it's the internet being like this person was rumored or like was everyone considered was for this in the role. 90s wanted to work with Paul yeah Thomas yeah so we'll talk well, i'll throw those out first of people who are rumored for something like one that's rumored is like deborah winger for linda partridge which i don't know if that's true because julianne moore was plays linda partridge and, and i think he wrote that specifically for mm-hmm. her so online says that on that's right another one for earl for earl partridge jason robart's character marlon brando okay yeah may may make sense but here's the stuff that is true so jason robards was cast in the film as earl partridge but had to drop out because of a staph infection anderson then offered the role to george c scott but turned it down saying the script was terrible (laughs) um robards would get better and come back and make the movie um so there's that anderson also offered a role don't know which role to burt reynolds but he turned it down due to disagreements in the Boogie Nights press tour, apparently. Uh, later, Re- Reynolds said he turned it down because once was enough when working with mm-hmm. Anderson. So I don't know what happened between them two, but that, because I think he even said at one point he'd never seen Boogie Nights because he was so like upset by, I don't know what happened on that press tour. Something crazy. Um, so film facts. Do you want to guess what movie he showed his production team? This is a big question to prep for the it movie. Wasn't, it wasn't Shortcuts. It wasn't Shortcuts uh network okay yeah at the time anderson was dating fiona apple and she actually painted several of the paintings that are used as set decoration in the film um apparently there's also a magnolia picture in every scene of the movie in some way Mm. or at some point uh or a lot of the scenes at least uh apple also wrote some music for the film and she has a voice cameo in the film do you know where she's Mm -hmm. at it's when Hoffman calls the wrong number oh. early on. We was trying to get Frank TJ Mackey and she's like, I don't know who this is. Like, mm-hmm. leave me alone. Originally in one of the early versions of the scripts, Anderson established that all the movie took place within only a few blocks in the Valley, but it took too long to explain all of that. They were all like really connected to one another by location at the end of what do kids know? There's a production logo for, partridge productions showing that earl partridge jason robart's character actually produces the show mm. eight and two repeat a lot in this numbers eight and two repeat a lot in this movie um you have the a2 chance of rain the numbers a2 appears in a lot of scenes in the background or on certain things uh it's it ties to exodus 8 2 and the line in the bible and it says and if thou refuse to let them go behold i will smite all thy borders with frogs mm. 
There you go. So, so he was basically saying throughout the whole thing. Uh, it was Jason Robart's last film before he passed away a year later. Also, another reason why it's called Magnolia, uh, Anderson was doing research on the Magnolia tree and discovered the concept that eating a tree's bark helped cure cancer. And you have Holland Robarts who have cancer in the movie. Uh, it's also something about uh, Magna. It was a specific word that he uses, Magna, where it's like a specific writer that talks about how like, there's a place where like things can get sucked up into like this, like a specific area in the sky and get dropped down years later. It's like kind of a mythical place or whatever. And that's where the frogs kind of come from too. Uh, Hoffman and Cruz would later appear in what movie together, Thomas? Hoffman and Cruz. I, I forgot about this for some reason until I was reading it. And I was like, oh yeah, they are in a movie together. A very big movie. Oh, Mission Impossible 3. Mission Impossible 3. I just recently rewatched the entire franchise. Mission <laughs> Uh, also referenced in Ted Lasso. I don't know what it is with Ted Lasso and 24-hour movies this this year, this month, but they're referencing yep. a lot of them. Uh, last thing. So in, Gar- in the Guardian press interview that he did, one of the things I was looking for for research, uh, they asked him, what actors do you want to work with that you haven't worked with yet? Can you guess the two actors he said? This is in the press tour for this movie. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis and Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, it's one. No, no, no. Daniel Lewis is one. And then the one, then the, then the other one, you can tell the, the writer's like, he weirdly said this name, which just doesn't make any sense to me. That that kid from the girl next door, Paul Dan. <laughs> Adam Sandler. Ah, uh, okay. Adam Sandler. And just, you can tell them they're like, yeah, he wants to start with Adam Sandler for some strange reason. <laughs> uh, so there's that. All right, story questions. Do you have any story questions, Thomas? Oh God, I feel like that's just opening up a can of worms. Uh, well, well, yeah, don't. It's not. It's not like three. It's still like three. <laughs> not not big ones. Uh, what? Here's what I have. What happens to Julianne Moore's character? What happens to Linda? She she and Frank connect. Okay, that's what I, that's what I was thinking Do too. Something good with that money. That's yeah, my thing. When I, she was I, like, "Don't about... give me the money. I don't deserve it." I'm like, "Give it to charity or something." That's <laughs> what I'm thinking too. Just do something with it. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder. Do Frank and her like have some not and not like a, a romantic relationship, but like do they like connect in some way? Here's a question: Frank T.J. Mackey, what's his world like after this? You know, I think I think I don't think you can let that empire crumble. I don't think he's going to come out and say like, "Guess what? I was full of shit." But I don't think his heart's in it as much anymore. I think he might recognize that that it's it's all a, a an, an act after this. Yeah, I wonder if he switches it up and it's like he's going to help women with, with men. <laughs> I don't know about and, that. And be like, I don't know about that. yeah. I know. <laughs> Here, here's one thing. I don't know, back to what didn't work real quick. How do you feel about like? Because it's a little odd that he ends up like doing the whole like not respecting women type thing as the character, but he had like a dying mother and it was the father. That it's like it feels like kind of like why would he like attack women in that? I think it's I think it's more of just not making emotional connections with anyone. You know, that's fair. Um, yeah, I yeah. think it's distancing himself from everyone, but the way in building that kind of emotional distance, he he has learned that how to emotionally manipulate specifically women but here's the thing is he's obviously learned how to also emotionally manipulate men because that's what truly his whole business is built off of there's no reason that yeah. we there's absolutely we have no reason to believe in this film that his method works at all we don't see any women yeah. like him if, in, if yeah. anything all the female characters we see hate him all that we really know that he it's knows the opposite of it's the opposite of eyes wide shut yeah. is what <laughs> yeah. you're saying but all that we really know is that <laughs> is that men buy his bullshit and so um yeah that's fair it's this, this idea fair. of being like emotionally detached from people because he lost both of his parents at such a young age he's kind of learned yeah how how to manipulate the people around him yeah 
Okay, I I, I, I like that. I like that answer. John C. R- or John C. Riley and uh, Melora Wa- Walters. What do you think? What happens to them? Um, I've got hope. I've got hope for those kids. Good. Uh, any other questions you have? Does Philip Baker Hall's house burn down? <laughs> Does he burn down with it? Do, they don't. They don't talk about that again, do they? They don't. You're right. They don't. He doesn't. He doesn't shoot himself. But then, like, we are led to believe that his house is about to catch fire. That sounds story questions. All right, awards. This Thomas has been waiting for this apparently. Awards. The Beatrice Strait Award. Actor, actress, one of the scenes that kills it. You have a few nominees already. Yeah. You said so. I've already brought up Alfred Molina and Miguel Perez both in that scene. I do got a shout out. He's not going to win it, but there's a character actor here who I love. Great guy. Someone someone I, I, I've worked with before. Uh, Don McManus as the uh, as 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 Julianne Moore's lawyer. No, oh, not, yeah. not as the lawyer, as the doctor. The first, the guy as who goes through the morgue. Yeah, yeah. Love him. Uh, he used to be on the sitcom Mom. Um, fantastic guy. Great character actor. He's been a lot. But my award that I'm giving it to, it's someone you you mentioned. Um, but I, I just kind of, I think he's fantastic in the brief amount of time he's on this scene. And I, and I also love like what he represents by being in this movie because as we've discussed many times this is paul thomas anderson's robert altman film mm-hmm. do, do you do you know who i'm thurston ha- or uh, henry, henry gibson, gibson. Yeah. henry gibson henry gibson who yeah. worked with with uh altman a, a few times in the in the 70s yeah. um is so much fun in this movie he is and he's got some great dialogue with with um William H. Macy. They have a lot of great He's back got and forth. They have a lot of great back of, like, and forth. Do not confuse youth for what? Uh, uh, for uh, children for yeah. angels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do not confuse children for, children for angels. But he's so kind of like bitchy in that in that character. And yeah. He's got that great. It's it's. <laughs> I mean, that is such a great moment when like William H. Macy is drunk and he goes for this big declaration of love to the bartender and and Henry Gibson just like pulls out some money and it's like you I've got money over here like yeah. just showing. Yeah william h macy like this is all he's here for he's just here for the money and the thing is mm-hmm. i mean there's so much depth to that character i think and maybe i'm reading too much into this but i think the reason that he's there and that he's so jaded and that he takes to william h macy yeah. in that way is that he has been there before you know yeah he's this 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 old jaded gay man in the 90s and it and it feels like he's been like he he immediately knows why william h macy is there and he's pining over that that bartender and it's like you almost get the feeling that he's done that before 40 years ago but yeah i think he's great in this scene and that's my nominee i think henry gibson's great he wrote i say he wrote for gibson uh and he said i hadn't seen him working in a while and i wanted to write something for him and then he's like i wrote it and i was oh wait maybe he's not working because he doesn't work want to anymore may i just wrote a part for him that like he doesn't want to be in uh but cool henry gibson beatrice straight award winner all right, next one. Annie Potts X Factor Award supporting actor actress that is the most memorable. What are, What are your thoughts on this one? <sighs> I mean, the easy answer is Tom Cruise. Uh, he, yeah, but is yeah. he support? Is he supporting, or are we gonna put him in lead? I don't know. Like who who's supporting and who's lead at I, this cause, point? Because I because I also think is I also would possibly put him as Gene Hackman MVP award. Winner. That's okay. That's I I was also gonna debate that. Yeah, I don't want to skip ahead. And we also, and then we might yeah. not end up awarding Tom Cruise anything. Oh no, we're gonna award something to Tom Cruise. Now. Okay. Um, he might be a co. Um, on something. I was gonna go Hoffman. I'll I'll take because that that feels supporting. Like he's like if you if you were to break down if you were to say the leads in each storyline or the you know 
that if you were to take each storyline and say like these are the leads of the storyline he's still supporting even within the storyline that he's in. in his own storyline and like two storylines kind of he's in the frank he's like basically he's got in the frank Ma- frank tj mackey story and the jason robards julianne moore kind of story as well he's still supporting i'll i'll go with that yeah. i'll go with 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 hoffman because again we talked about this thank god's friday about um deborah winger is it like she has a part that and not saying this is a spoiler in part because it's not but she takes a part that's like so kind of just like one of the smallest of the movie and could easily just become like forgettable and makes it like very memorable for like what she's given mm. and i think hoffman's a guy where like he has a part that's like it's meaty in its own way in terms of what's there but like that a nurse character can just disappear in a movie of this magnitude mm-hmm. pretty easily yeah. And he somehow is able to get because we never see anything outside outside of his personal life. We only see like he is a person that's helping someone else out. Yeah. That's all he's doing. He's he's literally supporting someone through their own storyline is the thing. So Philip Seymour Hoffman, I'm cool with that. Any Potts X Factor Award winner. All right, Gene Hackman MVP Award, person who carries the movie, director, actor, etc. All right, I've got three nominations. All right, what's the debate here? Tom Cruise, uh-huh. Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh-huh. and the rubber frogs <laughs> <laughs> let me hear your argument for for all of them or for, for like i mean the frogs is just like that's that's what everyone remembers if you've seen this film that's that you will remember other parts of the movie but the frog movie yeah um tom cruise because here's the thing tom cruise and paul thomas anderson both mvps in creating this tom cruise performance tom cruise and in, in, in yeah going for it and bringing everything about his persona and twisting it yeah and uh and just being vulnerable it feels it feels raw um yeah and paul thomas anderson for recognizing that and doing the same for all these other cast members bringing them together under this movie and getting these Mm -hmm. performances and getting these stories and, and bringing them all together if we're if we're talking like pinnacle of achievement this might i mean this is probably tom cruise's best performance yeah not paul thomas anderson's best movie so that that would be my argument against that's the argument uh, yeah against pta and for tom cruise but that's my argument for tom cruise actually i think in the scheme of things this is a more this is his best thing he's done and anderson's still a young guy who's like it's still like he's still figuring some things out with the film or with filmmaking in a way Mm -hmm. um and I think Cruz is like I'm not. It's not saying he's putting a lot more on the line than Anderson is because Anderson's like talking the town. If this movie fails, what happens to his career? But Cruz is like I am willing to put my like name in this movie. Where I'm playing a, a character completely out of my persona, so different from me, and be in this prestige drama when I could be all because he turned down End of Days, which end up starring like Arnold Schwarzenegger a big budget box office, like big paycheck to be in this movie. Mm-hmm. So I feel like this is like, again, talking about how, uh, like Cruz and being like uh, a trying to prop up filmmakers of like that he enjoys or whatever. This is the best example of that where he's like, cool, I'll go out on a limb for this guy. And like, and he was willing to trust Paul Thomas Anderson's the thing. It's like he, he, he could easily be one of those big celebrities who like only has his people that he works with, which is kind of what he does now. It feels like, but he's he's earned that right. But at this moment in time, he's like, cool. I'll go like jump in the deep end with you in this mm-hmm. movie where I play a, a, a sex pick a pickup artist, a sleazy pickup artist. After I just did like 
eyes wide shut or like yeah i, th- I think i think in, ter- in terms of Cruz doing this movie it actually elevates paul thomas anderson mm-hmm. in terms of pers- in terms of like notoriety that tom Cruise likes this guy so much he's gonna do a movie where he's a supporting character in yeah that's what i think all right tom Cruise, mvp of magnolia now my pitch for the frog yeah <laughs> You are betting this thought. I am the one who's in charge. I am the one who says yes, no, now, here. It's universal, man. It is evolutional. It is anthropological. It is biological it is animal we are men all right final questions on magnolia if it was remade in the 1970s or 80s as a robert altman film who would you cast i can't do this i'm sorry (laughs) there's like 12 people in this movie give me like give me like three just give me three um uh okay i'd I'd put elliot gould in the cop role okay um okay uh renee abergenois in the whiz kid donnie role if i pronounce that correctly i always struggle with that one yeah but he he did a couple of altman's films um i'm Mm -hmm. I'm just picking directly directly from uh that's what that's what i'm thinking too um shelly duvall and as the daughter the daughter yeah i think she'd be good i agree with that pick who else who else do i need to populate in here does donald sutherland count did he he only did mash right did he do any others oh god warren Beatty is 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 uh, as tom cruise as frank i'm totally down with that i'm totally down warren Beatty playing frank just because i want to see warren Beatty do that in that period of time julie christie is julianne moore's character linda partridge yeah uh 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 sterling hayden as uh jason robart's character yeah actually no i'd I'd do him as gator gator okay okay jimmy who would be jason robart's this is turning out well i think this is turning out completely well here's what where does robin williams go um he's the he's the nurse that's not a bad pick actually i think that is actually a really good pick for him in this point in time oh ray walston probably for uh you know he might mm-hmm. be too old for for jason robart's yeah he probably wasn't that no he was he was probably in the 60s or 70s he was in the 60s ray walson for for uh for that character that's a that's a decent cast okay. that's a pr- that's a lot of names you guys hope you guys kept kept track at home because we did not <laughs> um so yeah all right does this film fit with any other genre oh no you were talking you were saying they had they couldn't even figure out how to market it epic ep- yeah epic psychological no, drama no. as wikipedia no. says it's a 24-hour movie it's a drama now, how does this film fit with the twenty-four hour movie genre, Thomas? Um, it, it's one of those ensemble pieces of like, let's look at how all these lives intersect or don't intersect within this amount of time. But it mm-hmm. also is kind of got that after hours like look, like we were saying. It's not necessarily look how like crazy the can, this can get, but like we were saying with the frogs, like look how how epic, you know, look how important. Yeah this day can be you know you didn't you make you didn't realize it when you started out this morning but look how biblical your your day mm-hmm. can turn out any any given day yeah oh i've got i've got I one remember, more yeah, question every, 
one more story yeah, yeah. question did okay. stanley know it was gonna rain frogs just because the way he's acting in the movie he well and he asked he asks about the meteorological facility at the station when they uh, when they're leading him into the filming is that why he picked that day to be like no i'm done with this shit <laughs> that's a good question we might have to call up pta and, and ask him yeah, I agree with you on, on about twenty four hour movies. Why? Why it is all these things kind of coming together at one time, um, and then and but then also he again Anderson kind of subverts it because like he could connect everything but chooses kind of not to. Uh, all right, so that's Alan Magnolia. Into our final genre questions: What movies did we miss that you want to bring up here now for the twenty four hour movie? Um, I mean, I did. I mentioned Inside Man. That's um, that's mm-hmm. a great Spike Lee film uh about Mm -hmm. a a bank heist if we're talking about kind of the like ticking time bomb it's it's i think i think there's actually like a i think he built in like a stopwatch to the sound design of that movie if i remember correctly Mm -hmm. there is like a literal ticking in that film yeah um Mm -hmm. so that that's one i i was very tempted to do this month but Mm -hmm. but but did thank god it's friday instead friday instead (laughs) there we go uh i mean do the right thing in that one with spike yeah. lee he's in a few of these um a few i want to bring up uh go a little bit older we call it the setup with robert ryan a noir film about a boxer and it's all actually done that's actually done in real time not even just one day it's actually done in real time where he's uh i think i mentioned it earlier he's he's being tasked to throw a fight by the mob but he's kind of playing should he do it or should he not it's very much like butch and pulp fiction in a way mm-hmm. uh of like throwing a fight for his like, and, and him going off with his wife instead or something. I know I'll bring up too. Burt Lancaster in the swimmer. Ah, yes. Uh, the swimmer is a very odd film. Uh, another film. If you're not on its wavelength, you might not like it. Again, it's very much a big thing, like being on the film's wavelength. And that's one, like it feels very odd at first. Then you begin to realize, Oh, this is what's happening. Cause the whole movie is about him swimming. He's in Connecticut and he's swimming from pool to pool. Cause they're rich in the neighborhood to get to his house. And with every stop, you find out more and more about this character that Burt Lancaster is. And you begin to realize that, like, his facade, there's a, there is a facade here and that everyone else knows who he kind of is, but he's still in a different kind of mindset. Um, and also in terms of action one, Taking Pelham 123, uh, the original one by uh, uh, Joseph Sargent with Walter Matthau and Robert Shaw. Great kind of just heist, like kind of thriller movie movie within this genre and i don't think i have to tell anyone that clue is a fantastic movie but it is <laughs> and i love clue but it is so watch that yeah. as well so what did you learn overall this month thomas about the 24-hour movie um you know I, I, I definitely didn't know coming into it that those were kind of the the three categories that we were gonna find yeah i um and i think these are interestingly enough these are uh movies that that really benefit character actors in a way yeah um mostly because they do have these kind of larger casts um Mm -hmm. but we've we've touched on like some of my favorite character actors this this month um so it's that that's been really fun um and it you know it's this it's these big ensemble films in general that that lead to that but um or or yeah or it's just like it's a, 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 it's one of two things like it's character actors with big pe- people or it's like two people or like even like Locke with tom hardy with one yeah. person kind of mm-hmm. and then all kind of like where it's like it's a it's a showcase of some kind yeah um for specific people 
It's just one like I think I I came in knowing a lot of stuff, so I didn't learn an awful lot. I think it's just interesting to see with this type thing of like how how much you want to throw at someone in one day. Like, is it just it could be as simple as like an audition or no no like and, and ten ten items or less than we have to I think we talked about years ago when we did this episode of like a movie with Morgan Freeman where he's like researching as an actor of like him playing or working in a grocery store. And that's the day mm-hmm. is an audition for him or a research for him or it's die hard. Yeah. And it's like, it's an either way. The stakes are high for the character, but they're either very minuscule in the scheme of things or it's life or death. I think that's it on Magnolia. I think that's it on 24 hour movies, Thomas, anything else you want to add about either of them? No, it's been, it's been a blast. Thank you for coming along with us, everyone. Um, we did try and make this episode a little shorter than Magnolia, so <laughs> you're welcome for that. We'll cut it down a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah, if you haven't already, make sure you go look at our letterbox on before called Before Sunrise. Look at 24 Hour Movies available on my kind of letterbox. If you're on Letterboxd, um, a lot of great films. 157 films are on our list, so go check them out. See which ones you like. Um, so next month, guys, it's holiday season. We're getting it's getting in December. You know what we're doing? We're doing Christmas movies. First time we've done we did it. We did it. It was our first episode back in the initial revamp back in 2018. Mm-hmm. 2018. We did Christmas movies. So we're gonna come back to it next week or next month, next week too, with movies like It's a Wonderful Life, White Christmas, uh, Mother Christmas Carol, some good stuff. Got a New Year's Eve movie planned too for you guys, the apartment. So stay tuned. But that's all we have for you on this episode. If you're a fan of the show or a new listener, make sure you subscribe to the Nation Podcast so that you stay up to date on all our new episodes. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, make sure you rise for your whatever platform this is the show on. Yeah, anything you guys, you know, want to let people know that you love the show, you want to let us know that you hate the show, whatever you want to do, post it. We'll read it. <laughs> Send us on Instagram. We had someone, uh, Tyler, sent us a thing from Australia. Tyler from Australia sent us a, a message on Instagram telling us how much he enjoys the show. So thank you, Tyler. I hope you continue to listen. And thank you all for contacting us too on like at or at cinenationpodcast at gmail.com. Contact us there. We like hearing from you guys. Just like help us out. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Tell your neighbors. Tell your coworkers. Tell her, put it on at work if you can. Do whatever you want to. Um, and finally, don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all that jazz. Uh, Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. We hope to listen to more episodes soon. Bye.